from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Carrie Enoch Reinstein. Carrie is a photographic artist. He uses a variety of both traditional and digital darkroom techniques to, quote, go beyond the limitations of the camera to achieve a personal style, unquote. I started the interview by asking Carrie where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? Well, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City in a, what I guess we would call a slum or a Jewish ghetto. And I went to, I, I skipped two grades of school because I was advanced over them and ended up graduating high school at age 16 and left New York never to return for California. And what were your interests growing up? My interests were almost entirely in art. My heroes, actually, were people like Van Gogh and Cezanne and other post-impressionist artists. I spent two days of every weekend at the Museum of Modern Art. You know, that was kind of my place to be. It, w- it was free for kids. You are growing up... Jewish, was it more cultural or was it also... uh, It was entirely cultural. Uh So my parents were kosher and they kept me and my sister home on Jewish holidays for which, from school, for which, of course, we were grateful because (laughs) that was his off. But we had no idea what they meant because my parents were not otherwise religious. I see. They were second-generation Americans. My grandparents emigrated in the middle 1920s from Poland and Russia. So I actually had very little idea of what it meant to be Jewish, except culturally. Because my school, though it was a public school, was almost entirely Jewish. And what did you do after you finished high school? I went to work in a print shop in California, in the San Francisco area, and went to school at night. And started doing photography initially as just as a hobby or a pastime, but then I began making money at it, doing it part-time. So I worked during the day in a printing plant and in the evening doing stage photography and photographing dancers and that sort of thing. What were the circumstances that had you leave New York and go to California? A very unhappy home life. So you wanted to get away. I, I actually was a runaway. I turned 17 within a couple of days of graduating high school, and I literally hitchhiked across Canada and the western United States all the way to Berkeley, California, and I never looked back. How did you establish yourself in a strange state? Well, it was difficult at that time. That was in the late 1950s, early 1960s, 
And San Francisco was actually not as cosmopolitan as people tend to think of it, uh, nor was California at that time, and weren't particularly friendly or apt to give jobs and so forth to people from back east. So I basically use what we call in New York chutzpah, which means just sort of talking back and giving yourself kind of an aura as if you actually knew what you were about. So when you landed in San Francisco, what was the first thing you did? Well, the first thing I did was find some place to live and find a job. And actually, that, that only took about a week. I had friends from high school who were going to UC Berkeley. So I was able to stay with friends for a short while until I found a place of my own. Your first job was uh, working in a print shop? Yeah. And uh, how long did you do that for? Actually, I did that on and off for the next 16 years. And then tell me about your own freelancing work. Well, because that print shop also did typesetting for advertising agencies, I began to make friends with people at the agencies, particularly the art directors. That enabled, gave me contacts, and then I just was willing to work for a lot less money until I built up some kind of a reputation. So I, I had the contacts right there at my regular job. Can you describe the freelancing work that you did for those 16 years? Well, I, I took what was loosely called fine art photography, but it usually just ended up as small gallery prints or things that would be sold with specialty bookstores and, and high-end fancy greeting cards and that sort of thing. And they were all basically nature-based. So I also had a pretty much unending supply of, of models because young women who were on the stage in the San Francisco Repertory Theater and in the dance companies and so forth would model for free if I would provide them photographs for their own portfolios. So I got more and more experience at that. And then after those 16 years at the print shop, what did you do? I went into the beginning of the computer, the personal computer age, I started writing and submitting programs to come like Hewlett Packard for their programmable calculators. After a while, I ended up working for them as a contractor and moved up to Corvallis, Oregon. Then from there, a few years later, I was working at Intel, and from Intel, I was recruited by Microsoft. See, when I was in high school, I won some national writing award, actually both years, my junior and senior year. So I also wanted very much to write. That was quite a direction change from photography to writing programs for these companies. Well, for Intel and Microsoft, I didn't write programs. I was a technical writer. Now, remember, I didn't actually attend college or university, but it really never came up. It turned out not to be a hindrance, and I was a quick learner, and I had plenty of contacts. Because I had a a very large network. I started a computer club, actually the first one in the Portland, Oregon area, 
and soon there were 80 people in it, mostly engineers and so forth. So I had a network that was pretty wide, and then I, I held, uh, organized a nationwide conference of programmable calculator people and enthusiasts. So I was always expanding my network. Also, when I was very young and still in Berkeley, actually in 1963, I heard of the Baha'i faith. And I actually became a Baha'i within a couple of hours of hearing of it. So tell me your story. I was at a party. People who were peace activists and who were moderate socialists and mostly well-to-do people up in the Berkeley Hills. And I had been invited to it. And there was a young girl there sitting in a corner by herself, and I went over and asked her if she would like a beer. And she said no, that she didn't drink. I said, oh, that's curious. I said, well, I don't particularly like it anyway. I said, but why don't you? And she said, well, I'm a Baha'i. And I said, oh, that's something in Chicago that's Jewish, isn't it? And she said, no, it's not Jewish. And I said, well, maybe you could tell me more about it sometime. But I wasn't terribly interested, but we went outside. It was on the edge of the Berkeley Rose Garden, which is very dramatic, built on the side of a steep canyon in rows and rows and rows of terrace gardens, redwood arches, and so forth. And we ended up talking most of the night, again, not really about the Baha'i faith, but I asked her for a date. The next day, I came over to her house, and she wasn't quite ready yet, so I pulled a book off her shelf, and just glanced through it, and it was a chapter about the Bob I had never heard of. Can you explain to folks who the Bob is? He was the forerunner of the founder of the Baha'i faith. I had only about 15 minutes before she was ready, and it was a story about how he had been martyred in Iran in 1853, and I It was a miraculous story, but it was fascinating to me. So I asked her about it. Then I told her, how do do you know that your religion is true? I mean, I, I feel that there's such a thing as the human soul, but I don't really have a religion, and I'm not convinced that there is a God. And she said, well, you have to pray. And I said, I wouldn't even know how to do that. So she said, well, we could do it together. I said, all right. And I closed my eyes. And she read a prayer quietly. And as my eyes were closed, I had a kind of a daydream where I saw it began to rain on me. But it rained from every direction, sideways from the ground up, and 360 degrees an entire sphere of rain all over me, and I felt completely clean, like all the dust and dross of my life, troubles and everything, were washed away. And then, still with my eyes closed, I saw this gorgeous, beautiful, shining golden eagle on top of a long, tall, white pillar. Now I opened my eyes, she was finished, and I described it to her what I had seen, what I had dreamed. And she said, she showed me a picture of herself that was in her prayer book, and there was the eagle and the pillar 
and it was at a tomb in London, um, one of the major figures in the Baha'i faith. Name was Shoghi Effendi. Baha'is called their guardian, who was after the passing of the founder and his son. He was the one who led the Baha'i faith, you know, and helped it grow and translated its scripture and so forth. At that point, I, I wanted to read something else, and she showed me a book called The Hidden Words, and I only read the first page, just two short snippets not more than a hundred words, and they were so beautiful and so powerful. I said, now I know there's a God because only with the power of God could somebody write like that. I want to be a Baha'i. <laughs> and that was it. She said, well, do you have any questions? And I said, no. I had no questions, and that was it. It was on the power of the words. I don't want to call it a vision because it wasn't it was just kind of a daydream but it was so potent for me and also it was on the fourth of july and that seemed just enormously symbolic to me about freedom and independence and so forth carrie can you explain to folks what the hidden words are the hidden words were about a uh, hundred or so short paragraphs that were written by the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, as he strolled back and forth meditating along the banks of the Tigris River in Baghdad in the 1860s, where he had been exiled there from Iran. They are extraordinarily powerful meditations, exhortations for basic principles of justice, and spirituality and universal love and growth. And some of them are very mystical. They're all poetic, gorgeous in their imagery and symbolism. I'm a very visual person, and I was just totally overwhelmed by that. And I was overwhelmed by the strength of his language. I just could not imagine a mere human being, any person could write with that kind of power unless it came from God. Therefore, there was a God. And that was that. I didn't have any questions. I, I never had any questions. Mm -hmm. That was 48 years ago. So this is interesting. You walked into this young woman's place not having a religious perspective and you walk out I of this really didn't have any. and then you walk out of this young woman's place being a believer in God and in yes, um, the first time in my life right yeah. and, the only religion I actually knew anything about was Buddhism because it interested me quite a bit and I read a lot of Buddhist texts when I was in high school and I appreciated the Buddhist principles and so forth I didn't want to be a Buddhist or anything. I just thought it was beautiful. Mm. I, I react to aesthetic beauty. It's important to me. That being the case, this really is a transformation. How did this transformation manifest itself in what you were going to do next in life based on what you... Oh, it was, it was quite overwhelming. 
For one thing, I had been very attracted to left-wing politics. I had demonstrated for civil rights. I had been arrested at civil rights demonstrations in New York and in the South and in Berkeley. I was quite radical and held very extreme left-wing political views. All the anger and the intensity and everything that I felt and the social principles that I felt were now channeled in a constructive way instead of the way they had been before. So the first thing I wanted to do was get as far away from the people I knew as possible. I moved out of Berkeley and 20 miles away down the San Francisco Peninsula. From that day on, it was basically a new life. I guess if I was a Christian, I would have said I I was reborn symbolically, because that's really how I felt. How were you able to transfer your feelings for social justice from what you were doing prior to you running into the Baha'i faith to now that you were a Baha'i? That was the time of the draft and the Vietnam War, and I was a protester against it, and when I received my draft notice, I threw it away. I was subsequently arrested just a month after becoming a Baha'i and incarcerated for six days at the Justice Center in San Francisco, brought to court. And basically, there would be no charges or anything as long as I would agree to enter the military. The old me never would have. I had been taught one of the first principles was that Baha'is obey their government. I realized that I wouldn't have to carry a weapon or anything, so I agreed, and I was released. And then I felt that God was very good to me because they flunked me from the physical, believing that I was diabetic. So I didn't have to go. So before you became a Baha'i, you had basically thrown away your draft card. Yes. And so then the repercussions came after after you became a Baha'i. Yes, it takes several months. Right. Once you don't show up for the draft, it takes a good couple of months for anything actually happens. Maybe you could explain a little bit more on what the Baha'is did during the draft to obey their government, but at the same time obey their principles of not hurting their fellow man. Baha'is had a recognized status called 1AO, which, which meant that they would enter the military, but they would be in the medical corps. So they would be helping people rather than hurting people. They would therefore be obeying the laws of their government as they're instructed to do and performing service, a peaceful and a useful service. And I was willing to do that. A complete 180 degree change for me from my fairly wild radical notions and attitudes in the past And it happened very quickly because I was so impressed. When you accept God, you don't accept 10% of God or 20% or 40 or 50%. It's all in or all out. And if somebody has the past speaks as a 
mirror or what Baha'is call a manifestation of God, then they speak without error. And everything that they say and everything that they instruct you is for the good of humanity and for the good of advancing civilization. Therefore, you do it. And when you do it, good things happen to you too, as well as you making a positive contribution to society rather than just protesting or, you know, and that sort of thing, performing meaningless acts like, you know, going to jail or whatever, burning draft cards and that sort of thing, which from no good ever really comes of that. <laughs> but it does, when you understand your purpose, you realize that human beings are to perform services for each other and for society. So the Baha'i attitude pretty much had totally captivated me. Shortly afterwards, I moved to Chicago. I had uh, a nice job offer. Actually, I was became foreman of a fairly large printing plant in Chicago. And I saw the Baha'i House of Worship for the first time. And then after that, all I did was take pictures of it, thousands of pictures of the Baha'i House of Worship. So, Carrie, what would you say to your brethren now that pursued the path that you had about the wisdom of the divergent path that you took after you became a Baha'i? Well, the interesting thing is I still actually have contact by way of email and Facebook with people I went to high school with and people I knew just uh, for the few years afterwards. So I see how they've lived their lives. Two of them became quite famous. One is an award-winning science fiction author known all over the world. Another became a famous poet. But the rest of them led ruined lives. It's like they were stuck in a time bubble back still in the 1960s or still living in mentally in Berkeley. Still dressing the same way, using the same expressions, listening to the same music, and just dropped out. Well, I'm not sure what I would say to them, but I, I understand that's the way I would have gone, too, had I not found the Baha'i faith or had the Baha'i faith not found me. So I always felt very fortunate. Also, the Baha'i faith enabled me to overcome some personal tragedy, too, because I lost my first child to cancer when he was only three. And if I hadn't been a Baha'i, I would have had a lot of trouble understanding that, you know, and dealing with it. I suppose you didn't have a belief in life after death prior to becoming a Baha'i. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, I um, was over at the house of an uh, elderly uh, Baha'i in the Bay Area and talking about my son, who at that time had had, had serious uh, brain surgery and was having uh, x-ray treatments two and three times a week and so forth, and was very weak. He told me a story that he called the Divine Gardener. We said, you know, sometimes there's a little shoot or a sprout 
that's in a particular area of the garden or the forest was just crowded or not able to get all of the light so that it could grow, you know, to its fullest potential. He said the gardener will see that and his love for that young seedling, he'll transplant it to a garden where it can grow forever in pretty much infinite light. And that then made complete sense to me and that I never forgot it. He was actually pretty much paraphrasing the words of Abdu'l-Bahá, who was the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, who had told that story to various people who had lost their young children. And that's what enabled me to get through it. He led the funeral service myself at the graveside. And I told that story and read prayers. There were about 150 people there. We may not know the wisdom of why the gardener transplanted the young shoot, but... That's right. We, we probably will never really understand it. Mm-hmm. But we can only understand the broad general metaphor, right. the principle involved, why it happens to a particular individual, a certain family, whatever that we can't know. And also, the Baha'i faith does teach that there's a soul associated with the individual that's eternal, and that soul continues to live eternally in spiritual worlds beyond this material, earthly plane. I used to imagine sometimes that he would brush up against me, I mean, after he had passed, that I would feel kind of the chills and I would feel a sort of a connection. That actually went on for many years. It was comforting to me. We may not have a direct interface to the spiritual world, but I think also Baha'u'llah says that it's those souls that have passed on that become the spiritual leaven for the progress in this world. So I guess you were doing tech writing for a while and and were in the tech field. How long did you do that for? Well, I did that until 1999, when I retired, actually, when I was in my 50s. I was fortunate enough to have generous stock options from Microsoft. And the pressure of the high-tech world had gotten to me, and working sometimes seven days a week and long days and nights, and I was raising two teenage sons as a single parent, I just quit retired, and decided I would devote myself, go back to to creating art that I hadn't done for many, many years. I had thousands of pictures. Probably, it's no exaggeration, say maybe 10,000 35-millimeter slides, and they were all temporarily stored in my basement when I lived in the Corvallis area of Oregon. The water table there is very high, and there was an enormous rain and a sudden flood, and the basement actually ended up under five feet of mud and sewage with all the pictures. I was able to dig out a few boxes of them, though they were badly soiled, and then just washed them off, and then forgot about them for the next 15 years. 
didn't take another picture except for snapshots of my kids as they were growing up. Then there I was, retired, and the time on my hands, and I decided to take those 35-millimeter pictures and scan them and attempt to restore them and retouch them. I learned that skill and became very proficient restorer, film restorer. Uh, something I was also able to do at times for different Baha'i institutions on a volunteer basis. And of those thousand pictures, about 350 of them were actually able to be rescued. And eventually I gained skills in Photoshop and so on and started using that as if I were a painter painting on these scans and printing them to enormous sizes, like 20 to 24 inches wide, and got fairly competent at it and found it just enormously satisfying because for me, making art is a spiritual activity, and actually, it is one of the teachings of the Baha'i faith. Abba Baha teaches that the more you perfect your art, the closer you get to God. So you come to understand that making art is not just for the sake of making something that's pretty. It's a prayerful attitude. It helps you look into things. It helps you feel more spiritual. It helps you connect with the spiritual essence of things. For example, recently I was kind of at a creative low. I took my camera phone and just started snapping pictures of trees in my yard and some of the flowers in my neighbor's yard. And I began combining them and blending them with some of my old restored film images and digital media paintings. And after a while, I had scores of them. And they were completely different, especially with the trees. I thought of a phrase that Baha'u'llah said that all things give evidence of the innermost light within them, which is, you know, the seed of creation, the godness in things, and the evidences of divinity. So I created paintings that were very luminous. I found the more you look and the more patterns I would see, I would suddenly see in a couple of simple flowers that were just stuck in the chain link fence in my yard. When I combined them, suddenly a fractal image appeared that I, I didn't know was actually there. And you could suddenly see that in that chaos, there was a lovely kind of order. And the closer you look, the more light you see. Always when I took my pictures, I always actually pointed the camera towards the sun and towards the light. I like taking pictures, like say, of, of people, but mostly I, my favorite subject were birds, especially seabirds, shorebirds of different kinds, and wetland birds. And as they would fly in front of the sun, not directly, but with the sun behind clouds and so forth, they would glow, and you could catch them on film. And then I would use those and then begin developing those and blending them in various ways. 
I don't use what are called plugins in Photoshop or artificial effects or filters. Everything is done pretty much without that, by blending and changing colors and changing the aspects of things until they start to look the way I feel they should. Carrie, have you had an opportunity to show your work in public? No, actually, I didn't even try until recently when I'm now working on on a portfolio and I've spoken with a a local gallery here. This is just a mid-sized city. There aren't a whole lot of opportunities here, but I think that I will be able, I've decided to completely redesign my website because so many people ask me if they could have copies and so forth or prints. I have the the equipment and the ability to make gallery-quality archival prints. An archival print is made with pigmented inks, and they don't fade like your your average consumer inkjet prints would usually fade in a couple of years. But these won't. They're expensive to make. It it would cost me, you know, say maybe $10, $12 for a particular print, and it takes a long time, but it's well worth it. You mentioned a website. Do you have a website that people could go to to look at your work? Yes, but they'll only see work that's more than two years old there. It'll be another four to six weeks before the new website and a building is completely up, and then there'll be hundreds of new images. But yes, I do. It's called Enoch's Vision. The Enoch being my middle name, enochsvision.com. And that's where some of my older work can be seen. Some of the work on there is new. It's a series I call Illuminations, where I take short sections from the Baha'i writings, letter them in a kind of calligraphy style. I'm actually doing it electronically, lettering, but over specially prepared digital images. And there are about 80 of those that are on the website. Eventually, I'll have about 150 of them. So, Carrie, I want to thank you so much for telling your story and sharing your work with us. Oh, you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carrie Enoch Reinstein, a photographic artist. You can find his work on his website, enochsvision.com. I'll post his link on my website, www.abahaiperspective.com along with his interview. You can also browse through the archives of interviews on the website. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
They stood up on the mountain top and shouted out with tears in his eyes.
When righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. From the inception of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion, a descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom in conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. Glory. 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.